This is Shakespeare on Bard, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare, one play at a time. Today, the only one of Shakespeare's plays to actually be set in merry old England, it's The Merry Wives of Windsor. Ask me no reason why I love you, for though love use reason for his precision, he admits him not for his counsellor. But I say, love me, by me, thine own true knight, by day or night, or any kind of light, with all his might, John Falstaff. Mm, hang you, poor cuckoldly knave, I know him not. We all use this unwholesome humidity, this gross watery pumpkin. We all teach him to know turtles from jays. Oh, look! Here is a basket. Oh. If it be of any reasonable stature, he may creep in here. All right, as always, we're going to start with a short summary. How short? This is The Merry Wives of Windsor in one minute. Let's start the timer. Go. All is rotten in the state of Windsor. The fat knight, Sir John Falstaff, in need of money, plots to woo two married women, Mistress Ford and Mistress Page. He sends them identical letters, a ruse which is quickly discovered, but two women agree to humiliate him. Meanwhile, Mistress Ford's husband also learns what Falstaff intends, but he is so jealous that he actually thinks his wife might prefer Falstaff to him. Disguising himself as Master Brook, he ingratiates himself with the fat knight so he can learn what Falstaff plans. In a separate plot, and Mistress Page's daughter is being wooed by three separate men. One she loves, one her mother wants her to love, and one her father wanted to marry. Falstaff visits Mistress Ford, only to be interrupted by the arrival of Mistress Page, who pretends that their assignation has been discovered. Falstaff escapes in a laundry basket. The next day, he does this all over again, and they repeat the ruse. The wives let their husbands in on the joke. They all plot to humiliate Falstaff during a celebration in the Windsor Forest, during which Anne Page runs off and marries the man she loves. Falstaff learns he's been tricked, forgives them all, and everyone goes off to celebrate Anne's marriage. I'm not sure if anyone out there has ever written Shakespearean fan fiction, given the depths of the internet, I wouldn't be surprised. But if they have, it probably looks a lot like The Merry Wives of Windsor. Although half its cast has been stolen from the Henriad, the story doesn't quite fit within the chronology of those plays, making it feel as if Shakespeare plucked his characters out of one universe and dropped them into another. Now, had he done this for the sake of a great play, all would be forgiven. Sadly, this is not the case. Popular lore has it that The Merry Wives of Windsor was written in 14 days after the Queen remarked that she'd like to watch a play about Sir John Falstaff in love. While the play definitely reads like something written in a couple of weeks, I don't quite buy the second half of the story. The plot of The Merry Wives of Windsor has nothing to do with Falstaff in love. At the most, it's a play about Falstaff in lust. Yet, even this makes the play sound a lot more exciting than it is. There are those who suggest Shakespeare adapted certain plot points from an Italian named Giovanni Fiorentino, but few, if any, seem to note that he may have also taken a few hints from Chaucer, namely from The Miller's Tale in The Canterbury Tales. The story there involves a carpenter who becomes a cuckold after his wife begins to have an affair. In The Merry Wives of Windsor, that carpenter is Master Ford, who clearly knows the tale of the cuckolded carpenter, given how afraid he is of being the subject of the story's sequel. Cuckold? Whittle? Cuckold? The devil himself has not such a name. Page is an ass. A secure ass. He will trust his wife. He will not be jealous. I will rather trust a Fleming with my butter, Parson Hugh the Welshman with my cheese, an Irishman with my aqua vitae bottle, or a thief to walk my ambling gelding than my wife with herself. 
and she plots, then she ruminates, then she devises, and what they think in their hearts they may affect. They will break their hearts, but they will affect. God be praised for my jealousy. Eleven o'clock the hour. I will prevent this, detect my wife, be revenged on Falstaff, and laugh at Paige. <laughs> I will about it. Better three hours too soon than a minute too late. Fie, fie, fie. Cuckold, cuckold, cuckold. Chaucer is our earliest source for the word cuckold. It comes from the fact that the cuckoo bird often lays its eggs in other nests, and his story makes the cuckold the butt of the joke. Shakespeare does the inverse. In puritanical fashion, it is Falstaff, the would-be adulterer, who is humiliated. This probably isn't too surprising, given the fact that the play was written for the queen, the morals of the day would never have permitted a comedy in which an adulterous couple walks away scot-free. It would be going too far to say that The Merry Wives of Windsor is an adaptation of Chaucer, but Shakespeare may have been playing homage to it when he devised this play. Even so, Chaucer is far dirtier than Shakespeare ever was. In Chaucer, the adultery is real, while here, it never transpires at all. Now, this is the primary problem with the play. Chaucer gives us an adulterous couple who go through comedic lengths to keep their affair secret. Shakespeare, on the other hand, gives us a man who tries to seduce two women who, in turn, are plotting to embarrass him. What's at stake if they succeed? What's at stake if they lose? Remember the opening scene of The Comedy of Errors, one of the silliest plays Shakespeare ever wrote? There, we are told that the people from Syracuse are sentenced to death if they appear in Ephesus. Aegeus is already condemned. Antipholus of Syracuse will meet a similar fate if he's discovered. Yes, the play is a wild and silly farce. But for the characters, they are actually risking something dear. Now, none of this is the case for Falstaff. The only thing at stake is the most worthless thing he has, his honor, which is something only he thinks he actually has. Banal is the only word I can think of when discussing the Merry Wives of Windsor. It is harmless, mildly diverting, and utterly immemorable. Worse, Shakespeare, in need of an ending, goes back to the same well he went to for Love's Labor's Lost and A Midsummer Night's Dream. And for the third time, we have a play whose story is essentially over by the end of Act 4. The fifth act is once again a pageant performed by amateurs. The Merry Wives of Windsor is not a bad play, merely a boring one, and if not for the curious question as to its relationship to Henry IV, I doubt we'd be giving it much attention at all. To summarize the mystery that is The Merry Wives of Windsor, its main character, Sir John Falstaff, also appears in Henry IV Part 1 and 2, along with his entourage of Mistress Quickly, Bardolph, Nim, and Pistol. These last characters also appear in Henry V. In Henry IV, Mistress Quickly runs the body house, where Falstaff and Prince Hal drink their days away. But in The Merry Wives of Windsor, she works for Dr. Caius. In The Merry Wives of Windsor, Bardolph is a servant at the inn, something he is not in Henry IV, while Nim and Pistol bear little relation to their counterparts, as seen in Henry IV and Henry V. A boy named Robin is running around who is reminiscent of Falstaff's page from Henry IV Part II, and there's a single cryptic reference in Act Three to the fact that Fenton, the man that Anne Page loves, has been spending time with Prince Hal and Ned Points. The Prince and Points, who we know from Henry IV Part I, are never mentioned again. That none of the characters seem to already know each other makes it impossible to say that the events of the play happened after either Henry IV Part I or its sequel. The only conjecture left is that this is a prequel. Here is the adventures of Falstaff and his merry band of rogues before they eventually go off to corrupt Prince Hal. Now, this is the only thing that makes sense, although I haven't seen any critics suggest it. In any case, Shakespeare doesn't care enough to suggest it at all. 
All of this, of course, is thoroughly academic and of no interest to anyone who is not a scholar. Most people don't care that the Merry Wives of Windsor don't fit neatly into the chronology established by Richard II, Henry IV, and Henry V. Their only concern is whether they're watching an entertaining play. And I'll admit that it certainly can be when put in the right hands. People have definitely been attracted to elements of the plot for centuries, since The Merry Wives of Windsor has inspired at least five operas, the most famous of which is Verity's Falstaff, which streamlines the plot and eliminates a lot of unnecessary characters. It's true that there are some genuinely comedic scenes in The Merry Wives of Windsor, such as the one where the scheming women trick Falstaff into hiding in a laundry basket. Ford, Mistress Ford, here's Mistress Page at the door, sweating and blowing and looking wildly, and would need to speak with you presently. Oh, she shall not see me. I'm disconsed me behind the arrow. Oh, how you do so? She's a very tattling woman. What's the matter? How now? Oh, Mistress Ford, what have you done? You're shamed. You're overthrown. You're undone forever. What's the matter, good Mistress Page? Oh, well a day, Mistress Ford, having an honest man to your husband to give him such cause of suspicion. What cause of suspicion? What cause of suspicion? Out upon you. How am I mistook in you? Why, alas, what's the matter? Your husband's coming hither, woman, with all the officers in Windsor to search for a gentleman that he says is here now in the house by your consent to take an ill advantage of his absence. Oh. You are undone. Tis not so, I hope. Pray heaven it be not so that you have such a man here, but tis most certain your husband's coming with half Windsor at his heels to search for such a one. <sighs> I come before to tell you. If you know yourself clear, why... I am glad of it, but if you have a friend here, convey, convey him out. Be not amazed, call all your senses to you, defend your reputation, or bid farewell to your good life forever. What shall I do? There is a gentleman, my dear friend, <gasps> and I fear not mine own shame so much as his peril. I'd rather than a thousand pound he were out of the house. Comedic scenes like these are amusing, but they do little to improve the play overall. If the play has a high point, it's the fact that it contains several decent roles for women, all of whom spend the play being the smartest people on stage. The Merry Wives of Windsor also has an impressive ensemble, much in the vein of Love's Labour's Lost. Here's a comedy whose main character is, well, everyone. As much as Shakespeare loved writing plays with strong central figures, see Richard III, Hamlet, etc., he was also part of an acting troupe, and throughout the canon we see various efforts to write plays that would give all his actor friends something to do. There are several plays that, I suspect, were written to be showpieces for his troupe. Many of his plays, like As You Like It and Twelfth Night, fit this mold, but in those plays the plotting is stronger and the minor characters more expertly woven into the story. Given that Shakespeare had already written some of his best plays by the time he wrote The Merry Wives of Windsor, I'm referring of course to Richard III, Richard II, Henry IV Part I, it's easy to forget that we're still in the early stages of his career. Written in haste, Shakespeare probably didn't have time to develop The Merry Wives of Windsor into anything meaningful. Perhaps in later years he'd be able to whip up a work of genius in 14 days, but here such talents were still beyond his grasp. The only other high point of this play is Master Ford, the jealous husband who rails against women and marriage, and in doing so, serves as an early prototype for the themes that Shakespeare would explore in much greater depth in another play about jealousy and a certain more Venice. Master Ford is, like Chaucer's cuckolded carpenter, a great fool, which is yet one more way that Shakespeare undermines any potential tension in the play. If Mr. Ford had been more like Othello, we might actually fear for Mrs. Ford. 
Part of the great tension in Othello is the fact that Othello is a real threat to Desdemona. Suspicious of his wife, he becomes cold and calculating until one night he smothers her in her sleep. Ford, on the other hand, is too inept to ever be more than a comedic trope. And yet Ford and Othello share the same streak of jealousy that nearly drives them mad. Of all the characters in The Merry Wives of Windsor, Ford is the only one I truly care about, which is unfortunate since he's actually a secondary character. The rest of the characters are largely forgettable, including Falstaff himself, for he is portrayed as a buffoon with none of the pathos that mark him in Henry IV Part One and Part Two. Since this is the last time we'll see Falstaff in Shakespeare's canon, it's regrettable that he should have such a miserable swan song. Perhaps Shakespeare was already planning to be rid of him. In any case, The Merry Wives of Windsor remains a comedy that has a good title, a few fine moments, and little else to recommend it. It's a play for die-hard Shakespeare fans or curious scholars. As for everyone else, I'd recommend seeing the opera instead. Now's the part of the podcast where I talk about film versions of the play I've discussed. As with many of Shakespeare's lesser works, filmed versions of The Merry Wives of Windsor are restricted to either the BBC's televised version or filmed versions of theatrical productions. Now, the Globe Theatre has a production that is widely available uh, for those who want to sit through it, and I'll leave links to that on the show page. It's a solid production with energetic performances, and it's probably as good a production of this dull play as you're going to get. But far more invigorating, at least if you enjoy a good opera, is the adaptation by Giuseppe Verdi. Verity wasn't the only one to adapt this comedy for the operatic stage, but he was probably the best at it, and in cutting down the plot, he and his librettist did a good job heightening the comedy in the story. The subplots have more or less disappeared, the opera story centers solely on everyone's efforts to take revenge on Falstaff for his shenanigans. The bare-bones plot of The Merry Wives of Windsor is a perfect fit for opera, a genre which demands that the narrative stops every four seconds so someone can sing an aria. And Falstaff is such a larger-than-life figure that he fits the operatic form as if he's been invented specifically for it. Now, productions of the opera Falstaff are as numerous as the stars, and if there's not a live one going on in your neighborhood now, you can either wait five seconds for it to appear or just find one online. As always, I'll leave links to everything I've discussed on the show page. Well, that's it for Shakespeare on Bard. Next up, we take a break from the histories as we explore one of Shakespeare's finest comedies, It's Much Ado About Nothing. For more information about this podcast, you can always visit my show page at www.joelfishbane.net slash Shakespeare on Bard. And hey, while you're there, why not check out the rest of the website to see what else I do with my time. You can find information about how to get your hands on my novel, The Thunder of Giants. It's a book about two eight-foot-tall women who struggle to survive in a world much too small to contain them. And it's available from St. Martin's Press. That's it for Shakespeare on Bard. 17 plays down, 21 to go. Will Shakespeare as a play? Let's go and cough through it.